This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We're talking with Jerry Snyder, president of Historic Amsterdam League. Happy New Year, Jerry. Same to you, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. You always have a great uh, present for people as the New Year dawns, and that is that the Historic Amsterdam League puts out its Amsterdam Icons calendar. So we have Amsterdam Icons 2016, now on the shelves and available for sale, the fifth in a series. What is the uh, theme of this year's calendar? This year's calendar, we took a look back at some of the industries that put Amsterdam on the map. Uh, and uh, there's quite a few of them, actually. And uh, so we thought it was uh, it was about time we gave, uh, gave uh, some recognition to uh, what actually made Amsterdam the mill town that it was. Indeed. In fact, the famous history of Amsterdam called uh, Annals of a Mill Town by the reporter uh, for the local newspaper, uh, Hugh Donlin. Uh, and Amsterdam is known as the carpet city or the rug city, but as you correctly point out, certainly th th that industry dominated, or that's my opinion, I don't know if it is necessarily yours, but there were a number of other industries in Amsterdam. Oh, definitely, uh, and uh, it's it's often been uh, been my thought that uh, when Amsterdam, as you say, called the called the rug city, uh, people always thought of the city in the context of, of the three carpet mill complexes. But uh, in a lot of cases, they never realized some of the other industries that we really had here that were uh, really standouts in uh, in their own fields. And uh, with my with my background from engineering and stuff, that's that's kind of one of the things that always fascinated me about the history of the city here was its industrial development. And uh, uh, just just as an example, uh, a lot of people don't realize that Amsterdam had the uh, at one point we had the largest uh, spring manufacturing works in the United States here, right on Upper Church Street, right across from the city hall, was the Schuler Spring Works. Uh, they, uh, at one point, they were supplying 75% of the uh, the uh, elliptical springs for all the trucks and uh, buggies and uh, carriages in the United States, and um, very few people know that they were even around at, at, at one time, but they were a major supplier in the, in the country of springs. Well, you certainly have stumped the band. I, I really don't have any recollection of that. Did that uh, go out relatively early, or did they hang on? No, they uh, they uh, went out uh, about 1908 is when they went out of business. Actually, uh, it's kind of an interesting story. They started and uh, started in uh, in the mid 19 or the mid 1800s. Uh, Davis W. Schuler and uh, actually quite a quite a large complex developed there, and uh, took his son into the business, William, and uh, they they kept building up and uh, quite a large, as I say, quite a large complex, and that was. Uh, Originally, Church Street was Forge Street, and there was originally some iron forges right there, directly across from the uh, from the city hall. And uh, they uh, they built their works on basically the same place where the original iron forges were here in the city. And uh, when after uh, after his father passed away, after Davis uh, Schuler passed away, the son actually retired from the business and started his own spring business, which was the uh, William Schuler business, and he built another factory down at the base of Elk Street in the East End, and for a while they both were operating uh, at the same time. Uh, and uh, then the one on Church Street actually closed down about 1908, and the one down the East End, uh, they continued in operation up till about 1920 when uh, they were bought out by the Shuttleworth uh, brothers uh, when they consolidated uh, 
and became uh, more carpets. They wanted their own foundry, and they bought the uh, Springworks down the East End. Amsterdam Icons 2016, the new calendar uh, from the historic Amsterdam League. Uh, let me talk with you, though, about the carpet industry, which was big in Amsterdam with uh, two major manufacturing uh, corporations and, and three uh, rather extensive mill sites and a lot of um, ancillary, what shall I say, advertising stuff. I know that one thing that's politically incorrect today, certainly, but a lot of people, including my, myself, uh, who were growing up in carpet mill families, uh, especially, well, only if you work for the Mohawk Carpet Factory, is they, at Mohawk, um, when it was uh, in Amsterdam, did take advantage of that link to the Native American nation and put out uh, different things. For example, they had a they had a bank called with a figure of a, a young Indian child, I guess you'd say, and they called that Mohawk Tommy. And I do notice that you uh, do you know put that into the calendar. Well, that is part of the history of the industry here in the city, and it's part of history. So uh, it's uh, not to offend anyone, but it is part of that, and. Uh, it's definitely uh, something that uh, something that was part of it. Um, it was it's very has an interesting history. Back in the 50s, when they uh, when they developed that, that was actually a character that was developed for them by Walt Disney. Uh, his studios uh, back in the 50s, they were looking for uh, ways to make money and to uh, stay afloat, and they actually developed an entire series of characters. Uh, if people buy the buy the uh, calendar they'll notice on the front there is a picture of uh, Mr. Disney on the front and some additional characters that actually appeared in some of the animated commercials that were done for uh, Mohawk Carpet Mills that uh, the characters were produced by uh, by the Disney Studios for them. Well that, that is a great uh, point and uh, honestly one that I, I didn't know as well the, the Disney uh, connection I do know that uh, Mohawk for example I frequently and I write uh, history columns for the Daily Gazette uh, quote their in-house publication, which was called Tomahawk, with you know misspelling Tomahawk, but spelling it like Tom Ohawk. Uh, but I uh, didn't know about Walt Disney. Yes, yes, that was uh, that was something I found in, in doing the research on it, and uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, as I say, it had a whole series of commercials they did. I think there was five five animated commercials that they they produced, and if you search on the internet, you can actually find a couple of them. About that. Another industry uh, in Amsterdam was buttons, uh, the, the Chalmers Buttons Factory. But uh, it was actually it was owned by the Chalmers family, was it not? And but it, did, did it have a different name? Uh, yeah, actually, actually, it started out. It was uh, started out. It was the Hampshire uh, Pearl Button Company, and uh, yes, they were located. Uh, they were in the old Pioneer uh, Knitting Mill. They started out. I think it was. Uh, oh, let's see. Uh, they're they're actually in our uh, in our calendar for February. They started 1898. Uh, they were located right down by the mouth of the Chuckton under there, uh, kind of behind the stores on Main Street. And uh, they would actually they actually produced buttons made out of uh, made out of mussel shells, which were imported from uh, imported from the uh, Midwest. And uh, they would. The, they owned three factories out in the Midwest, a couple in a uh, couple in Iowa and one in Illinois, that would actually produce the blanks for them out there and send the little shell discs back here, and uh, they would uh, finish them off here at the at the mill here in Amsterdam and uh, uh, finish off the buttons. And 
interesting thing about uh, about Chalmers is they were uh, the first company that actually marketed buttons directly to consumers and got their name out there to the consumer. Uh, prior prior to them, uh, the companies just sold them directly to manufacturers and they didn't try to try to market their name to the consumer at all. But Chalmers actually went and copyrighted the name uh, Chalmers Pearls. Uh, for their buttons and began to advertise them in magazines and no other button company had ever done that and they got a name recognition out there in front of people and people when they bought clothing began to ask if the buttons were Chalmers pearls on the buttons because the buttons you couldn't really mark your name or trademark on the buttons themselves when you made them so nobody really knew where they came from but by getting out there and getting the name recognition for themselves they actually caused consumers to ask for those buttons and ended up becoming the largest pearl button manufacturer in the world that way. Isn't that something? And their advertising material is very interesting, very well done, because it ends up, the buttons, of course, being a product that people see and touch in their in their daily lives. Again, not to put you on the spot about this, but that this industry's gone. In fact, all the industries you talk about are, are gone from Amsterdam anyway. Um, any yes, recollection of how long they uh, Chalmers uh, buttons lasted? Uh, actually, Chalmers, uh, well, give me a quick second here. Uh, Chalmers actually closed in 1964. Uh, really? They were uh, they lost their market pretty much to uh, plastic and zippers for the main part. That's true. I was just reading that in another. Uh, you know, another person who follows local history, Mike Sinquanti, with his a new book out about birthdays, talking about right, yeah. a, a mayor being elected in the mid-50s, and he, he made some reference to that. That was, or, um, you know, when things were changing, and I guess mid-50s wasn't when it happened, but the mid-60s, uh, the Chalmers Button Mill going out of Amsterdam. Actually, an uh, interesting port that I hadn't realized until I was doing research for the calendar is that they actually... Uh, they had actually started a third mill. Well, they had actually had two mills there, uh, right uh, off of Main Street. They built a second one because business was going so well. Joined to the first one, straddling the creek, and uh, or creek if you're from Amsterdam. But uh, they built a third mill at the uh, at the base of Elk Street, uh, which was called the uh, the Elk Pearl Button Company, and that was exclusively for, for producing blanks for them, rather than having to import them all from the uh, from the Midwest. So and we haven't even touched to Coleco, uh, which uh, moved yes. in after the carpet mill uh, exodus, and then uh, itself went bankrupt. That was the big uh, toy maker, perhaps best known for their Cabbage Patch dolls. Right. Yes, Coleco. Coleco uh, actually came out of uh, came out of Connecticut. Started in '32 as the uh, Connecticut uh, Leather Company, and that, their name is a consolidation. Uh, they came to Amsterdam actually in '64. That's when they bought the clock building, and uh, came in and started making swimming pools and things such as that. And then they uh, started getting into the game industry in '76, uh, uh, electronic games, and they did pretty well for themselves until they and then the Cabbage Patch dolls in the, in the '80s. But the Atom computer kind of drove the nail in the coffin for them with that, and uh, ended up going out in uh, out in '88. They filed bankruptcy. Mm. And in fact, uh, that's one of the many dates you'll find in the calendar for 2016. You commemorate uh, that sad day in Amsterdam history. Yes, unfortunately, that was one of the dates we put in, yes. 
Tolico filed for bankruptcy. Well, uh, it's a great uh, calendar. It always is. Amsterdam Icons 2016. Can you tell us uh, where it's available? Yes. Uh, uh, it's available uh, Old Peddler's Wagon uh, on Church Street at the Five Corners. Uh, also at the Book Hound, it's, uh, 16 Main Street in Amsterdam. Uh, Amsterdam Library has them, and uh, also at the uh, gift shop at the uh, Walter Owen Museum on Church Street. And also they're available by mail from uh, Historic Amsterdam League. Uh, you can go to our website at historicamsterdam.org, and uh, the first thing you'll see on the on the welcoming page is a link to the information on the calendar. And uh, we'll be glad to uh, send them either to the person that orders or we can send them directly to a person that you might want to send them to as a gift. Well, Jerry Snyder, I thank you uh, very much for talking with us about the Amsterdam Icons 2016 calendar. Jerry's president of Historic Amsterdam League uh, recently awarded the uh, key to the city of uh, Amsterdam by uh, former mayor Ann Thane. Yes, that was that was a very nice honor for the organization. We certainly appreciate that, and uh, we th we thank uh, Ann and the city for that honor. Jerry, thanks very much. Always good to talk with you, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Bob. We certainly appreciate it. Bob Cudmore on the Historians Podcast. We continue with a remarkable story uh, also from uh, Montgomery County. Uh, we just heard from Jerry Snyder of Historic Amsterdam League. We're on the line right now with Kelly Farquhar. How are you doing, Kelly? I'm very good, Bob. Thank you. How are you? Good. Kelly is Montgomery County historian, also the records officer for Montgomery County, I believe. And joining Kelly is a well-known uh, figure on the history scene, uh, especially involving the American Revolution in the Montgomery County, and that's Norm Bolin of the Fort Plain Museum. How are you doing, Norm? Good, Bob. How are you? I'm okay. And this story begins with Kelly doing some house cleaning, if you will. I, I gather that you were, I don't know what, tidying up the archives, uh, and what were you working on, and what was your discovery? Well, we've been conducting an inventory, a re-inventory, if you will, of our archival collection. So we're, we're going through everything that we have and just, you know, making sure it's where it's supposed to be and um, trying to update and improve our, our collection's descriptions for our items. And mm -hmm. uh, there was an item that was identified as Fonda Family Papers, and there really wasn't much of a description as to the contents. So I pulled the collection of papers and realized that they were original documents and I started you know looking through them and I thought you know these really need to be digitized and as I was digitizing them I came across one that had a 1774 date on it and as I was reading through the scanned image I caught the words Boston and T so that caught my eye and I I was reading it and I got excited and I, I showed it to Norm when he stopped in one day and, and I said, geez, is this really as significant as I think it is? And he agreed. So this is a reference made by uh, someone uh, in Montgomery County in, in New York uh, where you came to the conclusion that it was a reference to the uh, Boston Tea Party? Correct. It was a letter from Jealous Fonda and he was writing to one of his colleagues on another matter, but he referenced um, the political activity that was going on here and the Boston, uh, the events in Boston with the tea. 
being so I guess what that, that shows us that he knew about it. Uh, presumably other people in uh, the Mohawk Valley knew that th this uh, event had happened and not only knew that it happened, but considered it important. Yeah, correct. Um, you know, the Boston Tea Party took place in December of 1773, and Fonda was writing the letter in October of 1774. So it was, you know, 10 months after the event. Very interesting. Let me, as I say sometimes, go slowly, because that sounds like his name is Jealous Fonda. Uh, maybe we'll start with the last name first. Uh, it's a prominent family, obviously. It's the family that gave its name to the village of Fonda, the county seat? That's correct. And also, to come up to the more modern times, their descendants include the famous acting Fondas, Henry, Jane, and Peter, correct? That's also correct, yes. But that what is that first name? Could you just spell it for us? It's spelled J-E-L-L-E-S. And I, I'm not sure if the correct pronunciation is, but we always pronounce it as jealous. I know. I, I was going to wonder if, if he went to a one-room schoolhouse, whether he was taunted for that unusual name. But uh, do, do you, you know, know it's, it's actually first? a Dutch origin, so they might have pronounced it Yellis. Or, or uh, we've also seen it as Giles in in the uh, in the English uh, version of it. Mm -hmm. And in uh, 1774, when he writes this letter. A jealous Fonda, I mean, would it be correct to say, I mean, you, again, we're talking with Kelly Farquhar and also Norm Boland, uh, let, let you fight it out or maybe both have something to say about it. Would it be correct to say that he's a, a, a leader of the incipient uh, revolutionary cause in uh, the Mohawk Valley of New York State? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Fondas, you know, jealous Fonda, uh, he, he was the older of the Fonda brothers, and he had served under Sir William Johnson in the French and Indian War. But, you know, unlike some of the other officers under Sir William, uh, Jealous uh, had decided that uh, they were, they were going to uh, side with the American cause for, uh, for liberty. And uh, so he was taking a lot of criticism for that uh, from other members of, uh, of Sir William's uh, family that were, uh, that were still around. And also Colonel Butler, he actually, in the letter, he references... Uh, Colonel Butler as being the one who was really criticizing him for uh, for his stand uh, on uh, on uh, patriotism and and uh, the cause of liberty. And in the subsequent revolution, isn't it Walter Butler? I may be wrong. Do correct me. But it, Butler becomes uh, kind of a major player, leading uh, loyalists and Indians in attacks on the Mohawk Valley people who are in favor of uh, forming a new country. Yeah, yes, it's Walter Butler. Uh, his home still stands up on the hill here, uh, just outside of the village of Fonda. And Walter was another officer under under Sir William and, and remained loyal to the crown. Uh, he was also a lawyer, too, uh, in the area uh, at the time, the time in between the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War. Uh, so, uh, so... He was, uh, he became a big uh, leader of the, of the loyalist, uh, of, of the loyalist opposition, I guess you would call it. Okay. And uh, we're talking with both uh, Norm and Kelly at uh, Kelly's offices, which are right by the railroad tracks in uh, Fonda, Fonda <laughs> New York. Went by here. Here. Yeah, Sorry we, about we that. Set the clock no, by that. That, <laughs> that was something jealous Fonda never heard, of course. The railroad wasn't built there. <laughs> right. But let's go back to the story. So, Kelly, or the story of the letter. Uh, Kelly Farquhar, a county historian, finds uh, this letter, and 
you basically turned it over to Norm to do research? Well, I know Norm has done a lot of research on the colonial period here in the, the Valley, and I wanted to get his take on the significance of the, the letter. And like I said, he agreed that it, it, was a, it was a pretty significant piece of our history. So um, he took the letter, a scan of the letter, and transcribed it for me. Um, I mean, we can read it. We can, the handwriting is fairly legible. Um, as normal attests, the handwriting is okay, but his spelling was not was not fantastic. Um, so there were a couple of words that we were unsure of, and uh, Norm did a great job with the transcription. and And he said, you know, we really should make this known, um, make people aware that this document exists. So that's when we sent out word about it, and um, we're getting a, a great response. And you, in the news release that uh, the county put out about uh, this uh, discovery, uh, they quote uh, a little bit from the letter. Uh, and I'll, I'll, you know, since I brought it, I'll, I'll have it in front of me. I'll, I'll read it. The letter in part states, and again, this is uh, Jealous Fonda writing, they... But let me hurry. They preach to the people. And when he says they, who's he referring to, Norm? Uh, he's, he's referring to uh, uh, Colonel Butler, uh, and uh, he, he was in a meeting. He's talking about a meeting that he was caught up in with Colonel Butler and the heirs of Sir William Johnson. Sir William has, has died at this point, uh, so it's uh, probably his son, John Johnson, and some of the other uh, relatives who all remained loyal to the crown. So he uh, he got caught up in this meeting. He said the meeting was mostly the heirs of Sir William uh, uh, that were there, and uh, they they were kind of ganging up on him in the meeting uh, uh, for for not uh, supporting the crown. And specifically, what he says is they, you know, the Johnsons and Butler, preached yeah. to the people that it was unlawful to call meetings and said it would be hard to pay for all the tea that Boston had destroyed, and if they began to pay that, then perhaps they should still find more and more to pay. So Fonda's, you know, I guess, as you say, feeling a little uh, pressure from the Johnsons and, and Butler. Do, do we know who he's, or maybe you've told me this already, and I just went over my head, do you know who he's writing to or the person for whom uh, this letter was meant? He was writing to a man named John Furman, and we haven't figured out who he is yet. I, uh, the the letter actually has an Albany heading in it, so probably Jealous Fonda was in Albany at the time. Uh, I noticed uh, there's an attachment or uh, another written paragraph that was added uh, that says that the letter was part of a uh, of a court proceeding, and uh, the letter does have some other business information in it. It talks about. Uh, uh, Furman losing Fonda's horse, and uh, so it might be that uh, there was a lawsuit going on over the missing horse. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I've looked through the Albany County Committee of Safety uh, uh, minutes to see if that name Furman pops up. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Uh, so it's one of those things we'll just keep our eyes open for, you know, to see if we can figure out just just what the context of the whole thing is. And I'm not quite sure why he gets into talking about this whole issue with Colonel Butler and the and the Tea Party. Uh, it's obviously he's making reference to the, the politics of the time. Uh, you know, you were at that period when people were starting to choose up sides uh, uh, in the, uh, for the coming revolution. 
so I, I, it, it somehow is tied in there, but uh, we haven't quite figured all that out yet. Mm-hmm. And the, the chronology is the Tea Party was in, what, December of 1773 right. out in Boston? Yes, that's correct. And the, this letter is written in August of 1774. Yeah, actually, what? October. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah, October of 74. Yeah, oh, October so. of 74. Um, okay. And since you've um, gone public with this, I, I, I've noticed a, a fair amount of publicity. I saw it in the Albany uh, Times Union. Um, uh, Kelly, what's, uh, you know, what kind of coverage have you been getting? And have you been getting any inquiries from uh, folks involved in, in history as well? Um, yeah, I mean, everybody who has seen the the press release or the newspaper coverage, um, they've they've had some really supportive words. Um, I have also seen that it went worldwide. Um, it was also put on the the United Kingdom Daily Mail, I believe. Um, and someone told me this morning it went out to Mexico. Um, so it's it's been it's. It's gained interest far and wide. No, and um, also I, I find in the in the news release it states that uh, the two of you are working on a, a new exhibit at the at the Fulton County. I'm sorry, the Montgomery uh, County Department of History and Archives. Yeah, this is something Norm and I have been talking about for a while, and and we've been, you know, thinking about what we're going to include in the exhibit. Um, but it was it was actually geared toward. The Fonda family and in the colonial, um, the colonial period here in the valley. And when we came across the letter, we said, "Well, geez, we definitely have to include this." Sure. Now it says here that the exhibit is to showcase the history of Tryon County, and you're now in Montgomery County. Tryon County was the colonial name for the county, but at that time. Tryon County was, was, as the car salesman says, just huge. Yes. Yeah, Tryon County, when it was formed in 1772, it extended to the southern borders near Pennsylvania, um, north to the Canadian border, and west as far as the Six Nations um, line. And, um, you know, at that point when the letter was written, it was still... Tryon County. It wasn't renamed Montgomery County until 1784. Now, can either one of you, and we're you're running kind of toward the end of the program, give me a, a little description of what happens to Jealous Fonda? I mean, does he survive the revolution and, and so forth? Uh, yeah, he uh, he actually uh, he started out with uh, with the Tryon County militia uh, as a, a major, and he was at the uh, at the um, Battle of Oriskany, and uh, of course Oriskany was a pretty traumatic experience here where they got ambushed at, at Oriskany and they fought their way out of it. Uh, after that, he got out of the Army. I suspect it, he was 50 years old at the time. Uh, he lived through that battle. I think he was wounded. Uh, I know he, he had a leg wound. I don't remember if he got it at Oriskany or if he had gotten it earlier, but but after that, he kind of got out of the Army and he, he stuck to politics, uh, so then he was involved with the uh, with the uh, New York State Provincial Congress, so he, he would spend time down in Poughkeepsie uh, at the at meetings down there. So actually, when the May raid, the May 1780 raid occurred on on the village of Fonda, which which was then called Conewaga, uh, he was down in Poughkeepsie at the time, but his family was here, and his family got just barely got out in time. 
Mm. Uh, so uh, then after the revolution, uh, he lost everything he owned, all the all this property, everything was destroyed. Uh, he did build a new home here in the village of Fonda, but but he died before he could move into it. And I'm and sorry, Norm, we're, we're just out of time. Uh, thanks to Norm Bolin and Kelly Farquhar for talking with us. Uh, look for that exhibit this coming summer on Tryon County at the Montgomery County Department of History and Archives in Fonda, the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cutmore.